0: Hi, my name's Andrew Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. This episode of the podcast is an interview with Jean Cavellos. Jean is a writer, editor, scientist and teacher. She began her professional life as an astrophysicist and mathematician, teaching astronomy at Michigan State University and Cornell, and working at NASA's Johnson Space Centre. She moved into a career in publishing, becoming a senior editor at Bantam W. Day Dell, where she created and launched the abyss imprint of innovative horror and the cutting-edge imprint of noir literary fiction. She also ran the science fiction fantasy publishing programme. Jean has had seven books published by major publishers. Her last novel to hit the stores was Invoking Darkness, the third volume in her best-selling trilogy, The Passing of the Technomages, set in the Babylon 5 universe. For 20 years, Jean has been running the Odyssey Writing Workshop's Charitable Trust, where she's the director and primary instructor. The Trust runs online classes and the annual Odyssey writing workshop for writers of fantasy science fiction and horror the only major workshop of its kind to be run by an editor i'm releasing this interview as soon as it's ready which is a little earlier than usual because if you're interested in applying for this year's writers workshop you have to get your application to gene by the 8th of april so i'm giving you guys a couple of extra days to get your application prepared if you want to go I had a fascinating conversation with Jean talking about planning and pantsing, how to create compelling setting even within the confines of a short story and defining the essence of character as well as many other topics. I'd been looking forward to this conversation for weeks and it did not disappoint. I hope you enjoy it too. Here it is. Hi everyone, this is Andy Chamberlain from the Creative Writer's Toolbelt and my guest today is Jean Cavellos. Hi Jean. Hello Andy. Thank you for agreeing to have a chat with us on the Creative Writer's Toolbelt. It's great to have you with us.
1: Thank you, I'm very happy to talk to you.
0: Well I've got a whole bunch of questions for you so I'll get right into it. I think you've said that writers have more problems with plot than any other aspect of their writing. So what advice would you give to a writer when they're developing the plot of their story?
1: As I've worked with so many different writers I find that that's by far the most common problem. And really, the simplest answer is give your protagonist a goal. So many times when I read a story, the protagonist is just sitting around, doesn't really seem to need to do anything or want anything, and happy with life as it is. And the author seems more interested in, like, showing the world, ah, look at the interesting world this character lives in, or in exploring the character, you know, oh, what an interesting quirky guy he is, which is all fine, but that's not the story. The story is about the character struggling to achieve something, so he needs to to want to achieve something. Sure. There needs to be a struggle, so there needs to be some obstacles or difficulty to achieving this thing, and then... The struggle to achieve the thing needs to be so important in the character's life that the character is changed somehow in the attempt, whether he succeeds or fails. And that shows us the impact and importance of the story, because maybe he wants potato chips and maybe he has to fight off his siblings to get them. So there's a goal and obstacles and a struggle, but probably he's not changed by that because he probably does that every day. (laughs) So we wouldn't really care to read about it, I don't think.
0: (laughs) So is it the process of overcoming the challenge that changes the character? Uh,
1: Yeah, the character has not overcome something like this before. So it's challenging him in new ways. It's making him do things he's never done before. Maybe he has to learn and grow. Maybe he has to overcome some internal conflict. If he has a problem fighting with his siblings, and yes, he will. The potato chips, there could be some serious internal conflict going on there. So in that way, those are kind of the two types of character arcs. is the gross character arc where somebody is learning and growing, like the Luke Skywalker character arc and then the internal conflict character arc which is more of the Han Solo thing should I be selfish and go after money or should yep. I help my friends and you have to make a difficult decision and then the character changes because of that decision.
0: Okay, so do you think you can combine both of those character arcs into the development of one character or do you think it's better to actually stick with one or other of those arcs that you described? Well,
1: a lot of characters actually have combination character arcs, having elements of both of those things. For example, Frozen Although that's a very long work, The Lord of the Rings, he definitely has to learn and grow a lot and gain courage, do things that he doesn't want to do. But he also has to make the very difficult decision of, do I throw the ring into the crack of doom at the end? And he's got this horrible internal conflict going on because he's a good person. He wants to save Middle Earth. And yet over the course of the books, the attachment to the ring has been growing and growing. So he has this difficult decision to make. Unfortunately, he makes the wrong decision, but things end up working out anyway, thanks to Gollum.
0: (laughs) Okay, I want to pick up on something that you said there. The character development that you're talking about, I presume you need to show that at points along the whole story. You shouldn't just wait and show it all at the end. I presume it's a gradual thing.
1: Yes, definitely, You want to plant seeds of this change. Maybe the reader doesn't recognize the change is going on. Maybe the reader doesn't realize or the viewer doesn't realize Han Solo's kind of fallen for Princess Leia and Han and Luke are becoming good friends. But they're experiencing it. And so when Han makes the decision at the end, they go, oh, yes, of course, yes, he's gotten so close to them, he now wants to help them, and so it makes sense. So you don't want to beat the reader over the head with, hey, the character's changing and becoming a nice guy, but you want to have enough in there so that when he makes that decision, it will be believable, because that's another common weakness in stories is that the author knows, oh, the character should make this difficult decision near the climax and change, and it's just not believable. It seems to come out of nowhere. And part of it is setting up what is this difficult decision, mm. you know, because that, be, that can be hard to kind of embody the person's internal issues in an external choice. Sometimes the choice is too internal. It's like, well, should I go over and grab the potato chips or should I not? I guess I will. But that's not really a decision between two difficult (laughs) alternatives, you know. Whereas should I take the money to Java or should I come back to near certain death and fight on the the Death Star? (laughs) That's more of a dynamic decision.
0: Okay, I want to stay with this issue of plot. And I want to ask how writers can retain sufficient energy and momentum in their plot to keep the story going. Because I've heard a lot of writing tutors and editors saying that it's the middle part of the story that is sometimes the most problematic because the whole thing sags and it loses energy so what is it that writers can do to keep the energy and momentum going for the whole of this story especially in that middle section
1: okay well one possible solution is just write short that <laughs> you have a very short middle okay <laughs> but if, if that's not the right answer for your story a couple of things can help with the middle Uh, You definitely want some escalation, you want things to get worse, so if there's a conflict and there's obstacles that the character has to overcome, the obstacles should get worse. If they are siblings who are trying to get the potato chips, maybe the siblings go by guns. Okay, so now this is more (laughs) dangerous. Or maybe we get more obstacles, so the neighbors also come over and want the potato chips. Right. Or the potato chips could be rotting, and so now there's a time limit. We must get the potato chips quickly, or they will be useless. So there's lots of different ways to escalate, and that can definitely make the middle seem very exciting. I mean, the middle can be some of the best stuff in the whole story. You also want to consider pacing so that if something is not important, you need to get it in there, but it's not the main thing of the story, then rush over it. Don't linger sure. on it. Don't develop into a big thing. And if something yeah. is important, then slow down so we can feel it intensely and get all involved and excited. Uh, and then I think the third ingredient for a good middle is suspense, where you need to see some sort of danger for the character that we can worry about. Suspense can also be created by setting up questions in the reader's mind. Right. So that we want to keep going to find out the answer, like all mystery stories have that sort of suspense.
0: Okay, so one of the things you mentioned there was the advantage of writing a short story. And I just want to pick up on the issue of world building and scene setting in short stories. Sometimes it's very hard to create a really believable setting when you haven't got much space to do that. So what advice would you give on scene setting and world building, especially for a short story of maybe like 1,500 or 2,000 words?
1: I think probably one of the best ways to handle that is to center your world around a novum, some novelty, some something that distinguishes your science fiction or fantasy world from the real world, and then just limit the other strange elements in the world to things that are consequences of that novum, so that you don't have 10 different things about your world like, well, there's fairies and they have psychic powers, and then there's vampires at war with the fairies, and then there's another country with trolls. So you're not having like a laundry list of, sure. of elements in the world, but just this, this one change and then the things that flow around it. And I think that makes it easier okay. to produce and for us to absorb within a short time.
0: So that major factor is then the source for other things in the environment.
1: Yes, right. So if you have a magic evil ring, you know, then maybe everybody will want the magic evil ring. And some people will want to get rid of it. And that create your plot. That can create a bunch of characters who have different feelings about the ring. And that can create your theme, which is that power is evil.
0: Okay, now there's a lot of debate in the world of writing about planning and how much planning you need to do, and there's conversations about planning versus pantsing, and some people think they're planners, some people think they're pantsers, and some people think they're perhaps a bit of both. But if you listen to somebody like Robert McKee, for example, he's saying that actually you've got to pay quite a lot of attention to planning and do quite a lot of planning before the story draft starts. So what's your view on this debate?
1: Um, Well, I think that's a great book. It's really, it's got a lot of good ideas in it. But I think there is, obviously, there's no right way to write a story. Each author has to find his own right way. What writing is so particular to the way a person's brain works, that you really have to Mm. figure out the way your brain works, what works best for you. And that doesn't mean what's the most comfortable thing for you. What do you feel happiest doing? It's not that. It's what yields the best results. So that you try different things, you try pantsing, you try plotting, and you see which yields the best results. But I would say whichever one of those you do has advantages and disadvantages. So if you plan, probably you're going to have a more unified story with a stronger structure. But then you may miss out on opportunities for happy accidents. Uh, and so you need to really be open as you're writing to allowing yourself to diverge from your plan and to go off, and to change your plan. You've got to do that. Otherwise, you're going to have, perhaps, a kind of lifeless story. Whereas if you're panting, then you may stumble across lots of great ideas, but probably your story is not going to be unified. It's probably going to be all over the map, and probably the structure is going to be very weak. So then you have to resolve to revise, to throw out a lot of what you've written, and create unity. So I think, for most people, a combination of those things is probably going to yield the best results.
0: Okay, now I know you're running a course on effective endings. So I wanted to ask you a kind of two-part question. Uh, First of all, how should a story begin? And then how should a story end? Perhaps we could start with how should a story begin?
1: Well, I'll just say I'm I'm only administrating the class. It's actually being taught by Cece Finley, who's the new editor at FNSF. But um, I'll give you my take on how stories should begin and end. It's really nice to have some sort of connection between the beginning and the end. Okay. So maybe the opening raises a question, and then the end provides the answer to the question. Sure. That can feel really satisfying and nice because we've waited the whole time to find out, and now we've found out. Or it can be great to start with a certain situation and then end with the reversal of the situation like, the best example I know of that is the original Back to the Future movie, where it starts with um, his family, him and his family being one way, and it ends with he and his family being the exact opposite of the way they were at the start, which is just completely awesome. So having some sort of connection there. Having an ending that reveals something that's been there all along, but now you're revealing it in a new way and we didn't quite see it before, but now it's now it's in front of us and we realize, oh, yeah, of course, why didn't I see that before? So I think endings are some of the hardest parts, or an ending is one of the hardest hardest part of a story because everything's got to pay off. Once you know how to do openings, it's not hard to create an interesting opening. And once you know how to escalate and do the other things I talk about in the middle, it's not hard. But the end is the test of whether everything works together, the unity of the story. And so kind of coming back to something from the beginning can be a really strong way to tie things up.
0: One of the good things about the writing community is the way in which so many people are prepared to give critique and to review the work of others. I wondered if you had any advice for writers around how they should receive critique of their work.
1: Uh, I think the m- most important thing is first that you decide that you want to hear how you can make your piece better, which basically means you want to know what's wrong with it or what's not working. If you don't want to know that, then don't ask anyone because <laughs> you will not be happy. I mean, there's a lot of writers who are not experienced in giving feedback who show things to other people with the hope that they will say, this is great, it's perfect, don't change a word. And no good critiquer will ever say that because, in my mind anyway, any Mm -hmm. piece of writing can be improved, whether you're George Martin or William Shakespeare. So you need to be ready for that. Then you need to to give your manuscript to people who you are willing to listen to, okay? If you're going to give it to people and then hear back from them and then say, oh, well, they don't know what they're talking about. Who are these idiots anyway? Um, Which I spent many years doing, giving my stories to people and then saying, oh, you're all idiots. Obviously, my brilliance is beyond your ability to comprehend. (laughs) And only many years later did I realize, you know, hey, maybe – (laughs) <laughs> these people have a point. They're all saying the same thing. Maybe I should listen to them. Uh, so I wasted a lot of time. So you want to make sure that these are people that you will believe and that you will listen to. Right. And then listen to them. Listen to everything. I know some people advise, you know, oh, well, throw out things if, if you don't agree with them or whatever. I think you should listen to every piece of feedback. That has been my evolution as a writer is starting out Rejecting everything that people told me. And then little by little going, oh, well, maybe that person has a point there. And maybe that person has a point there. To listening to every single thing that every single person tells me. And it doesn't mean that you have to do everything that they say. But they're giving you clues. They, you have to solve the mystery. So they're giving you clues. Do they understand the story that you're trying to write? If they're giving you feedback that's going to turn your story into something else, then clearly they didn't get what you wanted it to be. And if they didn't get what you wanted it to be, why didn't they? So you have to figure that out. They're not going to, not going to give you the answers usually. They're going to give you clues. And so then you go, okay, they didn't get that this was a romance. They thought it was a mystery. And so why, why is that? Maybe I didn't put in enough, you know, lovey-dovey stuff. So that gives you clues to how to revise. If they did understand what you're trying to do and they identified some problems, then that's very valuable. Maybe you don't like their solutions, and that's fine. But then come up with your own solutions. Don't just say, well, I don't like their suggestions, so I'm not going to change a word. No, you've got a responsibility. Now they've identified a weak spot. Maybe they can't even tell you why it's weak. They just say, I didn't like that character or I lost interest in that scene. And then you've got to figure out why. You're the detective. You put the clues together. So anyway, that's my philosophy, is listen to everything and use those things as clues to figure out what you need to do.
0: Okay, so let's flip it around then. Now you're the reviewer. So how do you give feedback in the most helpful and constructive way?
1: I think first you want to try to figure out what is the author attempting to do? What's the story the author wants to tell? And that can be hard. Sometimes the author doesn't know what story the author wants to tell. Or maybe the author is telling parts of three different stories. And so you can say, you know, I think the opening seemed to point to this type of story and then the middle seemed to be this type and the end seemed to be that type. And so maybe you need to choose. Uh, anyway, so, so identifying what's the author trying to do and then offering insight into where the author succeeded at doing that and where the author didn't. Um, And certainly finding strengths in anything that you critique is really important because every piece of writing has strengths and weaknesses. So don't just ignore the strengths. Those are really important. It's not just that you want to say something nice so you don't destroy the person. It's that you want to tell them what they're doing well so they keep doing it and so that they they work on doing it better and they work on bringing it out more in their work because if they have a real gift – for voice or for world building or whatever, you want them to make that front and center in their work. Maybe they can improve these other areas. Maybe they're horrible at plot. And so they can work on improving that. But really, what's going to make their work shine is probably not their plots. It's probably going to be this thing that they're already good at, that you need to encourage them and push them, push them to do better at it. Because Otherwise, they'll just say, well, I'm good at that. I don't need to pay attention to that. And that's not the case. I guess I would say also don't critique the work of anyone that you don't want to help. You know, sometimes people just sort of ask you and ask you and ask you. And so finally you say, all right, I'll read it. And you don't have a good attitude. And you, you know, maybe you feel like it's too much work for you and you resent having to do it. I mean, I've seen situations like that. So you don't want to be in that situation.
0: Okay, so what kind of issues do you tend to go back to a writer with when you've critiqued their work?
1: I usually have quite a laundry list <laughs> of things, but I will try to put them in order and say I think the most important thing to work on here, the thing that'll make the biggest difference or the, the weakness that is holding the story back the most is X. And so here's some reasons why I think X is not working very well right now. And here's some ideas about how you might make X better. So certainly, you know, style is really important as well as characters and plot and world and all of these things. But I think trying to prioritize it and give people an idea of, you know, this is like the biggest issue and then here are some some important but lesser issues helps them to focus so that they're not, eh, they may be overwhelmed. But at least then as they go back to revise, they can focus on, on the things that they want to improve the most.
0: Okay. So earlier you said that quite often you're telling writers to make sure that their characters have a goal. Are there any other things, perhaps two or three things that come up again and again that you find you keep having to say to writers?
1: Well, exposition would be one. Background information is exposition. And in science fiction and fantasy, we have a lot of that that we need to get out, usually. Uh, We need to explain the world and how the world works and the background of the character and how he got into the situation and so on. So I've read countless stories that open with the character sitting around thinking about his life uh, so that he can think about how, gee, I live in the United States of America, and we have a democratic government, we elect a president, and it's like, no, the character's not going to be sitting around thinking those things, and if he is, he's not a character I want to be reading about. So that's a very common problem. Uh, Having flat characters is a very common problem. I think, I mean, some writers are really good with character, but a lot of them, I think, in our field are really interested in idea and world. And the character ends up just being pushed around not having a goal or if he has a goal other people have stronger ones so he's just sort of a victim being pushed around and doesn't really develop beyond that doesn't become a full real person and I guess I'm saying what I'm saying is he doesn't give the illusion to the reader that he's a full real person obviously he's not a full real person uh, the other thing that I wanted to say is that writers in our field tend to be too nice to their characters. They don't want anything bad to happen to the characters. They don't want to torture them. They don't want to kill them. Uh, they don't even want to give them like a, an ingrown toenail. Uh, so that definitely limits the possibilities for suspense and conflict. Uh, I'm not saying that every story has to have, you know, a lot of violence in it, but there can be serious mental, emotional hurt going on in a story. But a lot of writers were kind of passive, thoughtful, sit at our desks. We are happy sitting at our desks. We don't really want to get up and do anything. We don't want to have a fight with anyone. And we don't want to be hurt or hurt others. So people have to overcome that. That's not what makes a good story.
0: One of the challenges that I know writers have, especially in the science fiction and fantasy genre, is the need to get across critical information to the reader without turning the whole thing into an info dump. So have you got any advice on how we can do that?
1: Right. Well, one of the simplest ways, which unfortunately is also one of the most used ways, so it's kind of old, but you have a new person come into the situation. And so when the new person arrives, the existing person has to explain to the new person what's going on. Um, They actually do this brilliantly in the movie Edge of Tomorrow because if you've seen that movie, um, Cage, who's the Tom Cruise character, comes into this war and he doesn't know anything. And so people have to explain stuff to him. Then he gets the power to relive the day over and over so he gets to know everything. And so he's constantly explaining to the other people who haven't lived this day over and over again what's happened and what they need to do. So that's a very clever twist on the use of the newbie person. Um, one of the ways I love for introducing exposition is through conflict. So if you have two characters arguing, facts can come out in the argument, but it doesn't feel like we're being fed a bunch of facts. It feels like, Two characters arguing. If you do it well, and the opening to "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" by Philip K. Dick, a book that was made into Blade Runner, the opening of that shows Deckard arguing with his wife, and in that argument, tons of exposition is revealed about the world and the technology. But it, it really feels like a very vicious argument between a husband and a wife. So we're, we're really interested. Sarcasm can be a good way to introduce, you know, somebody makes a sarcastic comment, which happens to be true, and that reveals exposition. I was just listening to Edge of Tomorrow earlier today. I like to play movies in the background while I'm working, and Cage, the Tom Cruise character, is suiting up in this gigantic outfit that has guns and stuff on it to go into battle. And he's telling one of his comrades, who's much more experienced, he says, you know, hey, I shouldn't be going out there. Think about this. I could hurt somebody. And the guy says, not with the safety on, you couldn't. And so this reveals to us the safety is on, which is thing through the whole first battle he can't get the safety off and so you could see a really bad version like the bad version that I would write would be the guy explaining to Tom Cruise (laughs) oh well so here's your suit and here's the safety but I'm not going to show you how to turn it on turn it off because I don't want you to shoot anyone by accident that would be so boring but having it come out as this little sarcastic aside makes it feel very real So anyway, there's lots of little tricks like that.
0: So do you think there's a link between something that's real or credible and something that's interesting? So that maybe as readers, the things that we find believable are the things that we're interested in most.
1: That's a really cool way of thinking about it. I guess I would say maybe there's a stronger connection between uninteresting and seeming false. So if something seems false, I think it, it seems it's uninteresting to us because we don't buy it. I think things can seem real and still be boring. Like, my life is not terribly interesting. <laughs> you could describe it very realistically, and it would not be a page-turner. But I, I think you're right, that the more we believe in the situation, the more involved we can be.
0: So how do you think that works with characters? Should they always be doing believable things? After all, for our story to be interesting, we might want them to do extraordinary things.
1: Yes, I mean... In some ways, the character doing the predictable thing, the thing that is consistent with his character that you've established, can make for a much weaker character than the character who surprises us Hmm. by saying something we didn't expect him to say or doing something we didn't expect. As long as it's, you know, as long as it's not completely off the map unrealistic for the character to do but if he does something that's just a little bit a little bit different than what we expected it's a surprise and makes him seem more real and more three-dimensional yeah
0: i guess it's true to say that most people in life are trained to be polite and civil to each other and to behave reasonably with each other most of the time so to come back to the point you made earlier about some writers being too nice to their characters do you think we have to unlearn some of that so that we can really give our characters a hard time
1: I think some people struggle with that um, quite a lot. Um, I guess I've never had a problem with that. Um, I mean, my mom used to take me to horror movies when I was eight years old that were rated R, and people would be, you know, drawn and quartered, and I would be thinking it was cool. So I don't really have a problem with, you know, having one set of ideas about what's appropriate in a story and another set of ideas about what's appropriate in reality. Um, Okay. But I think a lot of more normal people (laughs) do struggle with that and want, feel like they, you know, they are still operating under the way they would act in real life in the story. Yeah. But the thing is that reality is, is not. Proper and reality is not good. And reality is not people being nice to people. Maybe writers tend to be nice people. They do, but there's a lot of other people out in the world who are not nice people, and they're all around us. And so, if you're going to try to create an illusion of reality in your story, you've got to have different kinds of people, and you've got to have people who are horrible, and people who are delusional, and people who are mistaken. Another way this plays out is in the emotions that like a character. You know, his father will die, and so he'll sit down and cry. It's like, everybody doesn't sit down and cry when their father dies. There's a whole jillion reactions that one have, and every one of them except that one is more interesting yeah. than that one. So you want to also be real about how do you feel when stuff happens in your life? You know, do you really just some, somebody dies and so you sit down and cry? Is that really what you would do? Is that really how you feel? Or would you be thinking all sorts of different things, some of them very not correct, some of them very negative and mean and bad, and that you have to allow yourself to open up to that, to mm. all parts of your personality, good, bad, and ugly, and let those come out in a story. Otherwise, it really is going to be flat and unconvincing.
0: I want to move on to something a little bit different now. In one of my recent podcasts, I talked about the three essential qualities of a writer, and I said that they were perseverance, humility, and imagination. And I was wondering what your three essential qualities of a writer would be.
1: Well, I definitely agree with the perseverance one, and I talk about that with students at Odyssey all the time. Uh, Another way of, of calling it a word would be discipline also to sit down and get the work done and to not give up no matter how discouraged you are, no matter how many rejections you get or bad critiques you get or how much your family doesn't care what you're doing or how many demands you have on your time that you don't give up. Um, humility is really important. I would call it more self-doubt rather than humility. Um, I think you need to have this balance between believing in yourself and doubting yourself because you have to believe that, You have something special to say, and it's worth saying, and that if you don't say it, no one else will. If you don't have that belief, then you're going to quit writing. You may have all the discipline and perseverance in the world, but you're not going to think that's a worthy pursuit, so you will stop. So you need to have that belief, but you also need to have self-doubt, because if you just believe that you've got something important to say and you need to say it, you're not going to get any better at saying it. You need to doubt. You need to think, I'm not saying it very well. Yes, I have something valuable to say, but I'm not saying it very well, so I need to improve. I need to change what I'm doing. I need to learn new skills. I need to challenge myself. So those would be my three, I think, would be the perseverance, belief in oneself and self-doubt.
0: So it sounds like you're saying that you have to hold self-doubt and self-belief in a creative tension together because they're kind of pulling against each other.
1: Absolutely. And getting critiqued can easily throw that out of balance. (laughs) Self-doubt can quickly multiply and then you're trouble on that end.
0: I want to move on and talk about the annual workshop that you run. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that, what you do on that workshop, uh, what its objectives are, that kind of thing.
1: Sure. So the Odyssey Writing Workshop is a 6 week very intense program uh held in Manchester, New Hampshire each summer for writers of fantasy, science fiction and horror. It's pretty advanced, so um, the writers who come usually uh have written a fair amount or have perhaps published one or two things, although that's not a requirement. But it's for writers who want to put aside everything else in their life for 6 weeks focus on nothing but writing, and doing that can have a huge impact on writers. Um, I guess before I get into all that, I should just say it's held on the campus of St. Anselm College. Students stay in apartments on campus, and you can get college credit for the workshop if you want to. Our application deadline is April 8th, so people who are interested want to get over to the website, which is odysseyworkshop.org and apply if you're interested. We have class five days a week for at least four hours a day. And then you have about eight hours after the four hours of homework, which is writing exercises, critiques of your classmates' work, and writing your own new stuff, uh, and about 12 hours a day on the weekend. And it can often get longer than that. People pull all-nighters and things like that because they care deeply about improving their work. And that's what we're all about. We're not about destroying people. We're not about feeding egos. We're about, here are the principles of good writing. Let's see how you're doing. Let's see how you can do this better. Uh, So we spend about two hours a day on lecture and discussion. So we have a really thorough advanced curriculum, which covers all the elements of fiction writing uh, which is something that most workshops don't have very much of. They have more of the critiquing end and not so much of the actual learning the principles and techniques that you need. Um, and then the other two hours are spent workshopping. You know, we get in the big circle and go around and everyone gives their feedback on the stories.
0: Okay, so can you give us an idea of the broad areas that you teach on during those six weeks? Um,
1: okay, we talk about... First of all, workshopping and critiquing, the writing process, so drafting, revising, planning, um, supporting documents, creativity, imagination, problem solving. We talk about setting and world building, characters, plot, style, uh, showing and telling, dialogue, uh, what am I missing, point of view, oh, that's a big one, uh, and then how to get published is the last topic cover
0: <laughs> yeah. i think you said point of view was a big topic why is that
1: it's very hard for writers because these days we are so attuned to visual media you know movies tv internet that we that a lot of writers yeah. visualize a story happening like it's a movie so they they stay at a distance from the character's They describe things objectively. And if they get into a character's head, they're sort of hopping in and out and not maintaining a consistent viewpoint. For many fiction readers, what they want is this intimate experience of going through this struggle with this character and feeling like they're with the character, they're there, they're going through it, they're feeling the emotions of the character. And that requires a really close viewpoint. And there are so many just subtle little pitfalls that can create distance in the viewpoint that many writers are unaware of. So we talk about a lot of those things.
0: So really, it sounds as if us writers need to apply the discipline of having just one protagonist in our story. I mean, I know that sometimes I'll be writing a story and I'll find that actually there's more than one. There's several protagonists. But it sounds as if what you're saying is that certainly for writers that are still establishing themselves, sticking with one protagonist is a good idea.
1: I would say one of the most common problems that I encounter among writers is that they want to have multiple protagonists. I can't tell you how many times it's like, yeah, two protagonists. Now I have four protagonists. That's like, well, what, is this a short story? Even if it's a novel, really, it's very problematic. Uh, you can have supporting characters. You can have secondary protagonists. But to have two equal, equally important protagonists is very, very difficult. And certainly can be done, but it's not a good idea to do it in the early stages of your career when you're still just trying to figure it out. So, you know, the protagonist is the one who is struggling to achieve the goal. He is working toward this end. He doesn't always have to be the viewpoint character. You know, there are occasions where we have a kind of chronicler viewpoint character, like the Dr. Watson. Uh, Sherlock Holmes wants to solve case. But we want to see Sherlock Holmes in a sort of heightened, distant, heroic way, so we need to be in the viewpoint of someone who views him in that way, rather than to be in his own viewpoint, which would reveal the ending to us (laughs) way too early, um, but would also not give him this mythic quality that... I think uh, Arthur Conan Doyle was trying to achieve in those stories.
0: So I guess this touches on the issue of writing in the third person or first person, and it's a bit of a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is it better to write in first person or third person, or are there pros and cons to each approach?
1: Well, yeah, it does depend, and there are pros and cons. I would say that first person is more distancing than third person limited. If you're at the most intimate viewpoint To put us in the head of the character, you would think is first person, but it's not. It's third person. First person is somebody talking to you. It's like me. I'm the first person narrator. I'm talking to you. You are not me. You're listening to me. You have not been where I've been. I'm going to tell you about the story of my cat eating breakfast this morning, but you you won't be able to see it clearly because you're only hearing it secondhand through me. So... A good writer can overcome those, those, um, challenges, yeah. certainly, but it is more distancing. So that's yeah. the, the con. The pro is that you get this compelling voice. If the voice of the first person narrator is really distinctive, doesn't sound like any other voice you've ever heard, and really compelling, really interesting, entertaining, you know, somebody you want to sit and listen to for a period of time, uh, okay. then first person can be a good choice. If you want to us to melt into the character and be with the character then third person limited is the right choice
0: i want to come back to this issue of character because i think it's quite critical and i know there's a lot of writers who use things like character grids to help them create characters so now when i use that sort of thing i tend to find that all i've got is just a list of characteristics rather than a character itself so i'll have somebody who's male and six foot nine and they've got three tattoos and pink hair but i don't really know who they are <laughs> Yeah. So what's your advice on creating a believable, lifelike character? What should we be doing to achieve that?
1: Oh, wow, that's a really good question. I will say that I feel very much like you do about these character charts and lists and questions. I, years, you know, back when I was in high school writing, I used to fill out those things, and I would end up exactly as you're saying, with a list of traits that did not all work together. And often when writers do that, Then they go to write the story, and most of those things don't come into the story anyway, relevant to the story. So I think it's much better to start with like a kernel of a character to know if you can, if you are a planner or if you can plan to some degree, to know what the goal is um, and to know sort of the heart of the personality of the character. Uh, Is he shy and quiet, but bitter and thinking evil things underneath? Is he shy and quiet, but sweet underneath? Is he, you know, bossy and outgoing and resented by many and doesn't understand why? I I would say, you know, maybe sum up the character in one sentence or two sentences. Joe Straczynski, the creator of Babylon 5, used to say the two most important questions are who are you and what do you want? So if you can answer the who are you or who is this character uh, in one or two sentences and what do you want is the goal. And then you could further ask yourself, why does the character want it? Character may not know why he wants it. And I think those are like the most interesting kind of characters that don't know why, but maybe you know why. That can be the start. And then you can just, you know, start writing. If it's, becomes important that the character has red hair because that reveals he's you know the heir to the throne of gondor or something then you can put in the red hair but all those things are are just going to mess you up because if you try to get them in the story they probably are not relevant and worth they're probably not worth including
0: so i guess the important thing is to understand the heart of the character their essence and their motivation
1: right you know it could be helpful to take like Ten people you know, friends and family, yeah. And try to write down who they are in a sentence or two. What is the core, the key yeah. to this person that makes them makes that person distinctive? And that might give you an idea of you know how a character might seem real, what kind of real cores people have.
0: I want to come back to the summer workshop now. And you said that The attendees are actually working for about 12 hours a day every day for six weeks. So that's pretty intense. And you make no secret of the fact that it's an intense workshop. How do you think attendees should best prepare for that kind of intensity, for that kind of marathon effort?
1: Sleep a lot. Come with a lot of ideas. Usually in the first week or so, students submit a story that they've already written. So you bring a story. Hey, you're ahead of the game. And now you know you're gonna, you have, you submit six stories over the six weeks. So if you bring one, you're good for like a week, then you ha- you're given due dates, so you'll have five due dates for the other stories, and so you can start working immediately on the other ones. But what you don't want to do, well, what would be better not to do is to bring other stories to submit or to revise, but to work on new stuff. So that you can change your process from the ground up because I'm all about changing the process. If you change the process, you'll change the end result. If you don't change your process, you can refine and you can polish and you can improve some, but you're really limited. You're not going to have those big breakthrough improvements in your writing that you can if you change your process. So if you come with just a bunch of ideas that you've scribbled down in your journal or whatever, so then you have material, you're not going to be in that panic, to like, oh, I can't think of anything, but then you can start kind of developing them.
0: Right. So this issue of changing the process, can you give us an example of that so we know what you mean?
1: Sure. So if you um, have written a story that maybe it has the character wants something, he struggles to achieve it, He maybe he succeeds at the end but we don't feel anything for the character. We don't feel it challenged or changed the character. So then maybe something to do is, before you draft, uh, ask yourself some questions, like, why does he want this? How is it going to challenge him? Uh, How is he going to change? How is that going to be shown in the story through the action? Um, Or it might be, if you can't, you know, if you can't do that ahead of time, then it's after you get the first draft down, then ask yourself those questions, and then go in and write more drafts to to get those elements in there so you kind of figure out what's what's your weakness and then okay what can I do to improve that how can I change my process what extra step can I put in or how can I change an existing step to make that come out better
0: okay so just on the subject of drafting are you a fan of just getting through the first draft in one go not editing it too much or are you More somebody who would stop and edit as you go along, and would you recommend either of those approaches?
1: Well, being a former editor, I kind of can't help but edit everything, you know, from the back (laughs) cereal box to the shampoo (laughs) bottle to whatever. So when I'm drafting, I try not to get too hung up on things and to say, okay, here's what I need to do in the scene, but really, I'm stopping and rewriting like every sentence and then I'm going back when I get to the end of the paragraph and rewriting the last three paragraphs. And then I'm going back to the beginning of the scene because I'm seeing I should have done something earlier that I didn't do. And that, so, you know, getting to the end of the scene often involves lots and lots of back and forth. But again, this is a thing that, you know, authors have to figure right. out what works for them. I find a lot of writers who right. who are like me, rewrite a lot as they're writing, are then resistant to revising afterward. Yeah. And that's a big problem. If you're going to be resistant afterward and say, hey, I went, I'd make right. sure every sentence was perfect, so now it's all, it's like a, a brick wall, nothing can be changed or it's all going to fall down. Most authors cannot write to that standard. you you got to be able to go back in there and crash some yeah. holes in your brick wall and re- rebuild it. So I have no problem doing that. I recognize that my feeling that I, you know, got through this paragraph and it's pretty good is probably an illusion and it probably sucks and it probably needs five more rewrites after this. So um, that, that helps. <laughs>
0: okay. I want to come back to the workshop now and just ask you about the kind of people that you want to have attend the odyssey writing workshop so what kind of attitude what kind of aptitude or perhaps even what kind of ability should people have who come on the workshop
1: um so i'm looking for writers who want to improve which may seem obvious but some writers want to go to workshops you know to be told they're brilliant or to network with other writers um and i understand those things but that's not what we're about um So, people who want to improve, who recognize that they can improve, that there's room for improvement, Mm -hmm. and that have an idea about um, maybe ways in which they might improve. For example, maybe they have a list of their weaknesses that they already are aware of. Maybe they have uh, some ideas that they need to change, you know, to be open to change, to be open Mm. to trying new things, even if they feel bad, you know, even if it feels horrible to like, you know, try writing an outline, oh my God, it might kill me, uh, you know, to try it and see what happens or to try pantsing if you've never tried that. So to be open to change, to know that they have room to improve, to want to help others, It's really important in a workshop environment, especially in an intense six-week program like ours, that people want to help others that the way that everyone gets the most out of the workshop is by working together, not competing, not trying to tear each other down and prove that this person is awful and I'm brilliant, or at least I didn't say that, but to try to help each other. And I've had such great fortune in having wonderful people come to Odyssey who have this very positive attitude, who encourage each Mm -hmm. other when somebody's had a tough critique, encourage them, take them out for ice cream. (laughs) It's just a quick trip, okay? No (laughs) dawdling. People who are determined, uh, back to that um, perseverance, I guess. And it helps if they, you know, it helps if they're kind of resilient. Some writers aren't, and that's okay. And we try to, to deal with that and get through that. But if you can take a a disappointment and bounce back from it, that will help you continue and, and not lose time being very discouraged. And, you know, and so we try to do our best when somebody is feeling discouraged to to get them on the right course, to get them motivated, to show them, hey, you know, you are really good at this and, hey, you're not good at that, but you can get better. It's something you can learn. I mean, that's something I believe in very firmly is that writing is a, a collection of skills that you can learn. It is not some mysterious power that you're either born with or right.
0: not. Okay, so just on preparing for the course, am I right in thinking that attendees submit a piece of work when they apply and then they submit another one if they're selected?
1: Yes. So when you apply, you submit a writing sample with your application. And then if you're admitted, you submit a pre-class story. So now I have two pieces. I critique both of those, the application piece and the pre-class story. And then the first week I read you know, you submit your first story at the workshop, but that's the third story for me. So I critique that. And then we meet. After your first story at the workshop is is critiqued, we meet and we discuss the three stories that I've read. What are the common strengths? What are the common weaknesses? What do we think is the the top priority for the student to work on to improve? And so we make a plan. And I meet with Each student individually, several times over the six weeks, to like update the plan and say, okay, you know what, you did really great on conquering that weakness of giving, you know, your character didn't have a goal, now he's got a goal and he's struggling, and that's really good, so now let's conquer this next problem and kind of lead people through that so they can see where they're progressing, they can see where they're still struggling, and they have kind of a sense of of direction of how to what to do next. And, and a lot of times they'll decide to write a particular story to help them deal with a particular weakness. You know, so if weakness is in world building, they'll, write, they'll pick an idea they have where the world is kind of front and centre and they have to work on it.
0: Okay, so it sounds like it's a lot of hard work, but people can get a tremendous amount of benefit out of it. So if people are interested in applying for the workshop, how do they go about that? What do they do?
1: So... If you're interested, go to our website, which is odysseyworkshop.org. You can click on the workshop page, read all about it. We've got some wonderful guest lecturers coming in this summer that I didn't even talk about, but they're awesome, and they will provide their own insights and input in your work. And then you can click on the application page and download the application. It's something that you have to snail mail in and it needs to reach me by April 8th, so you probably want to mail it a few days before that, so you have to pay for that pricey postage. There's also lots of information about the workshop there, like you can check out last year's class and what they had to say and some of their uh, photos and quotes and uh, publications of graduates of Odyssey. We have a really high publication rate, 59% of our graduates go on to professional publication. And you can also, we got tons of free resources on our site. So podcasts, we have a weekly online discussion salon, we've got a blog, writing tips, lots of things to help you out all the year round.
0: And how many attendees do you normally have on the workshop?
1: Fifteen, yeah. It, it has varied over the years, um, but I've found that the best number is 15. And so you get a lot of personal attention, which is, I think, you know, you're limited in how much you can help people just talking to them as a group. And so talking one-on-one is really important to figure out what is that best writing process for that writer.
0: Okay, so my listeners are people who really do want to learn more about the craft, and uh, they tend to be writing in fantasy or science fiction genre, although not exclusively that. Then what final snippets of advice would you give them?
1: Ah, snippets of advice. Write every day. Read works that you think are great read in all areas of fiction and nonfiction you're feeding your leaf mold as Tolkien calls it the the stuff that you that's where you draw your stories from and the more enriched your leaf mold is the better your work will be. So if you feed it only garbage, garbage in, garbage out, and get feedback on your work, and always be pushing yourself to get better. So don't keep writing the same way you've been writing. Try something new. Read a book on writing. Do some exercises from it. Create exercises for yourself based on what you know your weaknesses are. Dissect the work of writers that you love. If you love a story, don't just read it once, read it 20 times and study it, pull it apart, analyze why it works, how it works. Writers can't keep their secrets the way magicians can. They're right there on the page and all you have to do is look. But if you just read a story quickly, you're not going to understand the tricks and techniques that okay. the writer's using.
0: So just before we finish, can you give us your website again?
1: Sure, it's Odyssey Workshop. Org, and if you haven't read Homer recently, it's O D Y S S E Y Well,
0: thank you very much, Jean. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today.
1: Oh, this has been great. Thank you, Andy.
0: Thank you. Bye.